Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. I experienced um, the diagnosis as a trauma, massive trauma, and um, I think these two years I, you know, really went down an emotional rabbit hole. Hi, it's Hilton Coppy with you and welcome back to Dementia in Practice, the podcast that's made by GPs for GPs and other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. As always, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia are with me. And this is a really special episode for me personally and also for the three of us because I've had an opportunity of speaking with two fellow podcasters from Talking Dementia with Heckle and Jekyll. Yeah, it was quite an interesting, I guess, collaboration, wasn't it? We came across their podcast after they'd liked our podcast on Twitter and then they were keen to talk to us, being GPs that are interested in dementia. And, of course, you know, we were really only too happy to get in touch and speak with them. And just so you know a bit of background, Heckle and Jekyll are both mental health professionals who've been diagnosed with younger onset dementia. And as we know, listening to people's stories about how they are living with dementia can be so insightful and we really can learn a lot from their experience. So I really can't wait to hear this. So this episode is the first part of a two-part chat. And uh, we spoke initially about living well with dementia and the importance of the person with dementia maintaining their autonomy. My name is... Heckle. <laughs> um, I, I have, I live with Lewy body dementia and Parkinsonian features. Um, I was initially diagnosed with um, vascular dementia um, and, and that was, oh, I'm hopeless with times, time zones, but that was um, about was it more than three years ago, I think? Um, anyway, just more recently, I've been diagnosed with the Lewy body dementia uh, mm-hmm. after my last PET scan. That was when I was diagnosed. And can I ask if you don't have to answer, because I know it's very rude to ask a woman her age, but maybe you could say what decade of life you're in, Michael? <laughs> I'm just about to turn what 60. Century? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just about to turn 60. Thanks, Heckle. And Jekyll, if I could ask you now um, similar questions. Uh, So um, how long ago did you, were you diagnosed? What was, what has been your diagnosis of dementia? And if you're happy to say what decade of life you're in. Yeah, um, I'm 55. I was diagnosed four and a half years ago. uh, and I have a diagnosis of um, semantic dementia, which is um, a variant of um, frontotemporal dementia. So you have, um, it, it's uh, classified by 
um, where in the brain the disease begins. And so for me, it's on the left temporal side. So that's what um, creates uh, the semantic um, disruptions. And then after five years, it, it moves, it, it progresses uh, across the um, frontal lobe into both lobes, left and right lobe, and it becomes frontotemporal dementia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, um, Jekyll, for uh, for sharing that. Um, uh, Stefan, Marita and I have had the opportunity to talk with you both uh, at some length as part of your amazingly fantastic podcast that's called Talking Dementia with Heckle and Jekyll. <laughs> and um, for our listeners who haven't listened to Talking Dementia with Heckle and Jekyll, I recommend that you go to wherever you get your podcasts and have a listen. We're very keen to hear more about this concept of living well with dementia. Mm. As you said, Heckle, you're living with Lewy body dementia. And I wonder if I could ask you both, that this concept, living well with dementia, what does that mean to you? Maybe, Jekyll, you might like to go first. Right. Well, well, you know, I think for me, living well is really, um, it, it's important that um, I have autonomy and I have uh, a, an independence and, um, a, a, and, and an identity that is still very much who I always was. And so living well means that I am being supported to express the whole me still, regardless of some of the fluctuations in functioning. Absolutely. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I would agree with um, Jekyll on that. We're, we're still the same person as we were the day before our diagnosis, and we're still the same person the next day. So we still have the same hopes, dreams, loves, love of our families and connections with the people that we had connections with. And those things are still very, very important in our lives, you know, and we, we it's a funny thing because sometimes people, when you have a diagnosis of dementia, um, people who don't know you well or, you know, distant friends and things like that or acquaintances they just hear the word dementia and think oh well she's due to be in a nursing home anytime soon mm -hmm. but actually we're still intelligent and articulate people and we're still finding wonderful things to do I'm still getting enjoyment in my life I'm still connected to my family and, and all those things that are the most important things to me. But we're also finding different ways of, um, of being in the world. We've had to sort of almost reinvent our time <laughs> mm -hmm. um, to, to find something that's, that's worthwhile for us mm -hmm. to be pursuing mm -hmm. because before we were both very busy um, professional people, very engaged in our careers. Mm -hmm. And when we had to lose our careers, all of a sudden you've got all this time on your hand. And mm -hmm. 
oh, it's overwhelming, yeah. you know, so what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Living well for me really is about maintaining our, our autonomy, independence and individuality. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you come, think about that, Hilton? I when think you- that is amazingly fantastic. And mm-hmm. so what, what does that actually mean for you? Mm. Yeah, well, it means that when you, um, you know, unfortunately lose your um, right to drive, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you lose, it shouldn't mean, I hope, that it means you lose your right to drive your life you know that absolutely um, you have a a a person who's okay using a machine to really support you to continue the things that you want to do and what have those things been for you Jekyll yeah well I I'm very analytic person so it takes 10 times as long to keep analyzing and folding in information and unpacking and relooking and so i i need someone who's patient enough to allow that process to happen and um uh, i have uh, some assistants um who you know i don't expect experts sitting around me um but i i do have a need for them to sit while I become an expert in discovering new things about myself and what I can and can't do. Beautifully said. So well, so well. Oh, my gosh. And actually, I think we could all benefit from uh, learning how to become experts in ourselves and what we can and can't do, no matter what's happening in our life. So, um, Heckle, if I could ask you about autonomy for you, what does that mean? And perhaps relating a little as um, many of our audience will be medical professionals, um, autonomy in relation to healthcare, what what does that mean for you? Mm. Yes, it means for me making my own decisions. Um, I still have capacity to make my own decisions, to decide Mm. what I want and what I don't want. I I still feel very engaged in my life and I don't want other people making decisions for me. You know, so it's been really important um, having the ability to, you know, decide if I want this medical procedure or if I don't want that medical Mm. procedure or those sorts of things. I think that that's been really, really important for me Um, because it's not a blanket thing either. Like I might not want um, breast screening, for instance. I might have chosen not to have that. but because um, I might be having a problem in another area, I might decide to have some sort of um, intervention there because it's it's impacting on my life, you know, so much. So I think each each decision is is important to be considered and um, discussed with your mm. GP, you know. Um, and I think that those conversations are really good to have up front. I love my GP. She's just wonderful. She's absolutely wonderful. But I would have liked to um, have gone through the conversations of, do you want to have breast screening now or whatever? And and that would have made it forefront in my mind 
you know, like I would have been able to think about it. To have that conversation up front would be really, really good. Mm. But, that, but that may not be an absolute um, position. No. Like, you know, it might be right for now. Yes. But then, you know, in a few months' time. I might change my yeah. mind. Well, that's the yeah. thing with this. Um, I might have said at the beginning, I may have said at the beginning, no, I don't want any of that screening done at all. Mm. Okay, I may have said that, but now actually I am having problems with my bowel and it's been going on for a long time and it's really impacting on my life. And so, you know, it's wearing me down and all those Mm. sorts of things. And so Mm. if I did say that before, I've changed my mind. (laughs) I want to have a colonoscopy, you know what I mean? (laughs) so I think, yeah, at the, it's important to have those open up front conversations with the GP. Wow, Steph and Marita, there was so much in that um that interview with Heckle and Jekyll already. We've we've got more to go, but already I just think we should stop here. Um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, Marita, maybe I'll ask you first, what really struck you about what Heckle and Jekyll had to say in that first part of the interview? Yeah, there were so many uh, interesting things and not in lots of ways not very surprising, you know, things we hear from other patients as well because I think in one of her first sentences it was about the the nursing home and isn't that one of the fears that so many of our patients have that um, a diagnosis of dementia equals um, being whipped off and put into a nursing home so that you sort of hear that time and time again but I think the thing that really um, intrigues me is this you know autonomy over uh, healthcare decisions and what a changing landscape that is. And while you make, might make a decision one day for this, that might change. And, and how do we accommodate in, that into our practices? And I remember being a medical student going to do a, um, a placement in the UK, actually, in a stroke unit and, and saying to the professor, geez, if I had a stroke, I just wouldn't want to survive. And he said, you know, it's funny that you say that because lots of people say that and yet when they survive their stroke, they're actually really happy they've survived and amazingly adapt to the deficits that um, they may be left with, even with some of the very big deficits. So, you know, it is a really important thing to take into consideration, isn't that that um, what we think one day and what happens to us the next day will potentially change how we view our um our ability to live well, I guess, is what is what that is, isn't it? Yeah, and I thought it was it was really interesting that Heckle said at first, oh, I don't want any screening at all. But when she started to get some symptoms, she she was in a position to be able to change her mind. And and Steph, I just wonder as GPs, well, for you, what do you do when you're caring for people with dementia around assessing their capacity to make decisions around screening and those sort of things? And how often do you review that to allow for people to change their minds? I suppose that's a challenge because probably as GPs, we don't come across people with younger onset dementia all that often. And it's mainly in those younger age groups where screening is going to be one of those things that you need to discuss. And I think when I first heard Heckle and Jekyll talking about this and first listened to this, I 
I thought, I don't really know if I would think that. I think maybe I would still carry on with screening. And it seemed like an automatic decision for me, I guess. And I think what this highlights is that there, that we really have to make our consultations person-centered. You know, the person in front of us, you know, even people who don't have a diagnosis of dementia sometimes choose not to have cervical screening or breast screening for whatever reason. And we have to respect that decision. It's not that it's about having the conversation about why it might be important. And if you have, you know, I think the other thing with these sorts of diagnoses is that there might be a period of shock and adjustment to that diagnosis and trying to feel your way through and trying to work out what is happening and at what rate. And is this something that's important for me to do right now? Or do I need to work out how to live live with this diagnosis first and then worry about all the other health things that might be important. And I think that's what they were expressing is that initially maybe that's how they felt. And then as things change and move, you you reassess that decision. But the important thing is that they still have capacity to make those decisions. And just because they have dementia doesn't mean they lose that. And I think uh, Jekyll said it so beautifully about where she was asking for people to be patient and to sit with her while she becomes an expert in discovering new things about herself and what she can and can't do. And I guess that's that was, I suppose, a call to us as GPs to be patient around a whole lot of things with people around the time of a diagnosis of dementia. And I think that one was really a good one to maybe talk to carers about as well or family members as well that it is that even though it can be quite difficult to be patient at times just how important it is to the person living with dementia to be able to live well. I thought uh, Heckle said that so Oh no, maybe it was it was Heckle at first who was talking about, as you mentioned, Marita, early the fear about nursing homes, and then Jekyll went on quickly to talk about driving and how she just said so beautifully, you lose your right to drive, but it doesn't mean you lose your right to drive your life. What were your thoughts, Steph, when you heard Jekyll say that? I just love that sentence because it says everything in one like tiny little sentence, but it's so powerful, isn't it? Because people often associate losing their license as being the loss of everything because of loss of, you know, independence and other things surrounding their identity. But then actually, saying that you don't lose the right to drive your life means that there's so many other things that you should be empowered to be able to do. And it shouldn't be just a, you know, it's just a a great euphemism for all the things that are wrong with the way that we treat people who have a diagnosis with dementia. Yeah, I think that sentence could be a real useful one when we are talking to people about driving, actually, that whilst this is huge, it doesn't mean you're going to lose the right to drive your own life. And I think people might go, aha, okay, you know, it might be a little bit of a sweetener in some ways. And also to overcome that stigma in a way, because I think the driving thing is one of the great barriers to people seeking out a diagnosis, isn't it? It's one of the great barriers to making a diagnosis sometimes too, isn't it? Yeah. And using that for educational purposes as well is quite powerful. Yeah. One of the things that highlighted to me that both with Heckle and Jekyll is that even though they've both had dementia for a number of years, younger onset dementia, they're both still incredibly intelligent and uh, with some patients able to articulate quite deep thoughts. And the metaphor of driving that Jekyll so beautifully expressed not 
just driving the car, but driving her life. It was so poignant for me that here's a smart, intelligent woman who there's something going on in her brain that's making the world a more complex place. But that smartness and intelligence that was there before is still there. Just have to give her a little time and, and then there it is. So let's hear a little more from Heckle and Jekyll as we continued our conversation and I asked them a little bit about their thoughts to do with advanced care planning. One great thing was, though, we went through um, the living will and that's, that was a really good thing to do. What's that? That's when you decide, like you have thought about and you decide, okay, do I want to have fluids? Or oh, end-of-life care. Yeah, do oh, I want right. to have fluids? Do I want to yeah. have antibiotics? Yeah. Do I want to have, you know. Yeah. I checked big no box. Leave me alone. But it's not only, it, it, it goes into not only like the do not resuscitate, yeah. which is the big one, obviously. Yeah. But, but it goes into the little nitty-gritty mm. in terms of, like, even fluids, which can make you feel comfortable, mm, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, you don't want to, like, dive into no, this. No, yeah. no, and, and pain and those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. So, so I think it's, it's good to do that. Mm. It's good to mm. do that. It's good to do it for each of you as individuals. Mm, and yes. I imagine it's good for you to do it with your close family as well so that mm -hmm. they're relieved of some of the responsibility of having to make those decisions should the time ever come where mm -hmm. you're not able to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But there's also the knowledge that ultimately your family will decide for you anyway you know, depending on where they're at emotionally or if their acceptance, you know, it, it, it rests on them largely in the end. So mm. I guess if uh, I, I would say to my patients, my, my goal is to honour your wishes as best as I can. Mm. In order to be able to honour your wishes, I need to know what your wishes are. Yeah. And I guess for your families, that's the same situation, mm. isn't it? That they, mm. I imagine, would want to honour your wishes. But um, how do you go about having those conversations with your family to ensure that they do know what your wishes are? Mm. Yeah, that's really difficult because we both have children and they're not that old. Um, mm. um, so you don't want to, like I don't want to, this is enough of a burden. Mm. It was enough of a shock and a burden and and a worry mm. for my family, mm. you know. Mm. So, mm. so um those, those. So have you had those conversations? I have. I've had the conversation that I don't want to be resuscitated, mm. but I haven't gone into the into the nitty gritty mm. of it all and all that mm. sort of thing because I don't think that they can hear it at the moment. Mm. I think my my husband just he knows mm. you know you know very deeply and um, you know very supportive of that and alongside it and I. Think my young adult children. They say, 
Yeah, we understand, but that's a long way away, isn't it? You know, yeah. so so and and so it becomes sort of like a distant thing that, you know, and and fair enough. I think that's fair enough. That's the, that's the reaction that my children have. Oh yes, yes, yes. But that's that's not. We don't need to talk about it now. Yeah, because you know mm. they can't bear the thought of losing their mother mm. at, at this stage. Or that you won't be able to take charge. Make my own. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. So I guess it's like what you said, Heckle, uh, with the the GP, you might need to revisit these conversations uh, mm. on a periodic basis and, and probably with your family members mm. as well that that might be the case. But maybe we can come back to what you said earlier, Heckle, about reinventing yourselves after the diagnosis, particularly once you lost your professional identity, or I don't know if you did lose your professional identity, mm-hmm. you lost the time that you could practice your professional identity. Yeah. How did you each go about reinventing yourself once the diagnosis was made? Finding a, a way to, for me, finding a way to give back was so important and I felt I was blowing around in the wind like a little seed from a dandelion, you know, mm. because I didn't know what to do, how to fill my days and, and that sort of thing. And mm. I'd gone from being incredibly busy with running a award and, you know, things like that and all of the issues that go with that to nothing, mm. nothing. Daytime TV, oh, my gosh, and I'm not a daytime TV person. So um, I, I had to find things to do. And initially I um, researched a little bit about dementia because even though I'm a health professional, I knew very little about it. I only worked with people with dementia way back early on in my career when the dinosaurs walked the earth. <laughs> as a student nurse. So I, I researched dementia and I did the Wicking course through the University of Tasmania and I learned a lot about it then. And then I thought, oh, I can do this Wicking course, so maybe there's other things I can do as well. So then I became involved with um, Dementia Australia and also with um, the Dementia Alliance International um, that's run by people with dementia and found a little, well, a huge community of, um, of support and information and resources and things available. And, and that, that's been fantastic. And then I, I'm now a member of the Dementia Australia Advisory Committee and that's wonderful because um, we have a voice and there's like eight or nine of us, eight I think, in, in Australia and, and we have a voice. We give the consumer's voice to Dementia Australia plus plus there's lots of advocates also for Dementia Australia and they give a very strong voice too. Then also we've discovered creative pursuits that... Who would have thought we would end up doing podcasts? 
No, I would never have thought I'd end up doing podcasts. So there's been new things open. Um, I, I think my pathway was so different to yours because, you know, Heckle was much more of a public person and had quite a public arena, you know, just in her day-to-day life. And after diagnosis, if I think if I've got this right, that you found stepping stones that that maintain some of that world, mm-hmm. whereas oh, my world was very private. You know, I had a private practice with a, with private clients and private, 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 and all these layers of privacy. And so when I had a diagnosis, I um, stayed in the cave basically, I, and I I didn't tell anyone, and I. Um, and I, I, I had no, there was no community that I um, reached out to. I, I, I didn't even want to. And, and I, I needed a lot of time to study what was going on. And it was really frightening. And I think I stayed in that cave for two years. And I think I'm still kind of in it. And it, I, it you know, I, I, I experienced um, the diagnosis as a trauma. Massive trauma, and um, I think these two years, I, you, you know, really went down an emotional rabbit hole, mm. and it, it exacerbated some of the symptoms because I lost all confidence, confidence, and uh, it was very frightening. I imagine it was incredibly frightening for Jekyll and for Heckel. And and I think, Marita and Steph, um, part of the things that perhaps has been so frightening or so traumatic for both Heckel and Jekyll is that they've got younger onset dementia. Uh, Steph, I might ask you, in your experience, uh, how do you find people with younger onset dementia respond to that diagnosis perhaps uh have you noticed differences to perhaps uh older people with alzheimer's or a vascular dementia yeah i think the difference is probably that there's a a lot more grief and and loss isn't there because you're losing so much of your life i suppose if you're working full-time and I think that's what Heckel kind of explained that she was had a very busy career, was all all consuming. Well, for both of them, really, was their working lives, and suddenly not able to do that in the same way. And so you have that sense of loss of identity. I mean, no matter what we do, our daily routines are very important to us, and and work forms quite a lot of hours of that. So if that's suddenly taken away from you, you can feel lost and a sense of loss at the same time. And all those, you know, the losses associated with all the hopes and dreams of, you know, how you had envisaged those later years in life and your kids, you know, reaching their milestones and, you know, all of a sudden the reality is that, you know, you're going to potentially miss a lot of those. It must be so hard. It's no wonder she describes that diagnosis as a, trauma and then says a massive trauma and interestingly the whole notion of you know sort of withdrawing and going down that emotional rabbit hole and that impacted actually on her symptoms and I guess that's a a really important point for us to take home to try 
to help as best we can to try and, I guess, you know, help people understand, work with the diagnosis, explore any other issues around anxiety, depression, because often, you know, they can be um, helped with that as well, which I guess we've all got to look out for that. I think it highlights that opportunity that we have to use something like a mental health care plan to enable somebody to access some psychology for, you know, whatever, like, you know, if somebody's having perhaps some of the frontotemporal dementias that cause changes in behavior, like loss of empathy, for example, that might be quite a a significant change for a a family or a couple. And so having some um, psychology for the family and the person concerned to to navigate that that change in behavior might also be appropriate because you know it's just so different having younger onset dementia than it is when you're perhaps a bit older the presentation is different and the experience that people have is different so and and also just looking at the two of them heckle and jekyll it, they they chose totally different paths on receiving the diagnosis as well you know, Heckel sought out more information and, and, and Jekyll hid away. It was very clear that Heckel wasn't going to sit around watching daytime TV and she reverted to her strengths, and uh, which were to find out more information. And we will find out in the second part of this interview in the next episode how Jekyll also used her strengths once she was able to take some stepping stones out of the cave. But one of the things that I was really struck by both Heckel and Jekyll, which I haven't noticed as much with some of my patients with Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, is their degree of insight into what's going on and their ability to express the insights that they've gained from thinking about it. Uh, I'm wondering if either of you have got any thoughts about that. Yeah, I think the thing that has struck me and certainly listening to their their podcast as well was what a gift it is to us to really be able to um, learn from them. You know, they do have incredible insights. You know, I don't know that um, I'm just trying to think of, of, you know, my patients with Alzheimer's or vascular dementia or, or who are older. You know, I wonder if there's a little bit of a bias towards them like there can be with older patients that we forget that they've had a working life and that they've had um, loads and loads of experiences whether it be travel or whether they've you know had some other part of their life that we don't know about and we kind of assume that that you know oh well it's almost like it can be part of getting old Um, so I just wonder if we also don't take the opportunity to ask or, or people who are older don't have the confidence to speak about those issues or who they are or what, what what's meaningful for them in life. I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? It's very different. It is very different. And um, I'm wondering if I haven't sat patiently enough with some of my older patients with Alzheimer's to help them to become experts in the new phase of their life, as, as Heckel so beautifully said earlier in the interview. Mm. Steph, um, One of the other things that really struck me was the way Heckel spoke about protecting her young Mm. adult children from needing to talk more deeply about her wishes for her ongoing care. Uh, I, I just wonder what your thoughts were about that terrible dilemma in a way for 
for perhaps both of them having young adult children and who are perhaps in a little bit more denial than what they are as to the potential gravity of their situation. Mm, I guess it's just being mum, isn't it? Like they're being the mum of their children and you don't want to put your children through excess trauma or the thought of, you know, forcing them to think about the unthinkable is not not a nice thing to do. So I think she's shouldering the, as she said, the burden of it. And I think that's interesting because later on, sometimes we, we talk a bit about carer burden and you know that experience and and now this is hearing from the person living with dementia shouldering a burden that they don't want to put their family through thinking about some of these things that she was talking about in the advanced care directive and it was just quite poignant i think you know it's such an amazing sort of analogy in a way because almost she's the person living with dementia and the carer in a sense because she's still caring for her adult children yes and i yes. was just wondering is that you know, almost carrying both burdens. And I wonder, is there a space for us as GPs to offer? Would it be something they would like us to talk to their children about at some point in time? You know, would that be helpful? Or would it be, you know, maybe exploring it a bit more even with them to say, try and understand what it is that they're fearful of in terms of burdening children? Because I can imagine some you know adult children might want to even be a little bit more involved perhaps and might want to kind of I guess be prepared and be able to help and be able to relieve a bit of that burden it's very you know it's very difficult from the outside not being in that situation and I guess you don't know how much of it is the adult children saying back to them oh but that's a long way off to be kind of reassuring because I would probably say that to my mum um in a kind of you know we don't need to think about that. Let's just carry on kind of thing. So it's unclear, I guess, who who's hiding things from whom to protect whom. I mean, I get the sense they're both, well, I don't get the sense. I, I think I know they're both incredibly strong women, you know, and it's probably a very normal response, I guess, for them to be feeling they can do this, you know, and they kept, they don't need to to worry their kids. It is a difficult conversation though, isn't it? Like having having these sorts of conversations with people so young who are, as we're talking about, living very well and having very productive lives, you know, mm. and it's not like cancer in that there is a known, you know, some cancers, there's a known kind of trajectory of what's happening to someone. Whereas this is, you know, so individual, you don't really know when things are going to change you know, how long is it going to be till things change? And when do you need to start thinking about these things? So it, it is a very different level of conversation to have and when to have that conversation as well. When When is the right time to say, right, well, let's talk about the advanced care directive. Let's talk about end of life. Hilton, I'm curious to just know how you feel as a father. How do you think you would be in that situation? Uh, well, I think I would probably be pretty similar. And you know, I've in my life tried to do everything that I can to keep my kids safe and happy. And what I think I've learned from listening to Heckle and Jekyll is that in my role as a GP, I need to be patient and I need to, as Steph keeps coming back to, have my antenna up for what's right for the person sitting in front of me at that time and be mindful that things will change. So, 
giving the opportunity for those conversations, but not forcing them and being willing to review their uh, desire to talk about various things. So I think that's really the take home message for me from, from what I've heard today. Now, there is more to come with Heckle and Jekyll, I'm really pleased to say. And uh, in the second part of this interview that will be in the next episode, they talk a little bit about how they've used creativity to help them live well with their diagnoses of dementia. Yeah, that was, look, it was an amazing uh, interview, Hilton. Well done. Uh, I can't wait to hear next episodes and have a chance to, to chat around this whole concept of, you know, using creativity to live well. In the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au forward slash GP or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. That's right. And don't forget to tell others about this podcast if you've been enjoying it. If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or a carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500, or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.